quite a bit of um, stuff happening behind me, and I'm not uh, that good with distractions. <laughs> Squirrel! Uh, so thank, thank you. That's perfect. Ah, I was in a beehive up here. That's great. Um, well, there's a, a photo that's coming up here on the screen, and uh, I had the privilege of being able to do uh, Alex and Rachel Hunton's wedding yesterday, and so there is a, a picture of uh, the bride and groom there, and so they got married uh, yesterday, George and Linda Hunton's son, uh, just to see what God's doing in our church and for you to be a part of that. Um, in order to get pre-marriage counseling, uh, one of the things that I'm saying now is you have to find a couple uh, that will go through pre-marriage counseling with you. Uh, just because I can't, I can't disciple everybody. We need other people to be a part of the process. And so the past two weddings I've done, uh, the couples had to find someone else in the church that would take the pre-marriage counseling together with them. And uh, Tom and Jen Stevens uh, walked uh, with uh, Alex and Rachel all the way through all these classes together. Uh, and here's how God works all these details out. Alex and Rachel are both teachers. Alex, a music major, Plymouth State, uh, teaches music. And Tom and Jen Stevens just so happened to have gone to Plymouth State, music majors, and both teach uh, at public schools. And so uh, just really appreciative for that. Even George Hunton in his prayer and thanks said, just want to thank Tom and Jen uh, for walking through it with my kids. So uh, just a, a great thing as a church to celebrate, even as the times are difficult, people are still getting married and uh, to see their joy and their ideals. Uh, they did their own wedding vows partway through uh, the service and they just were fantastic. Uh, and so encourage them. And uh, we got to drive to Plymouth uh, twice uh, over the past two days. And I realized that I love cruise control. Uh, any, anybody else love cruise control? Yeah, cruise control. Uh, here it is. Yeah, it is important uh, because, uh, number one, it takes the chore out of driving. Um, number two, uh, you don't have to keep switching your eyes from the speedometer to the road, you know, doing that, that whole thing. I know that there's some cars now that have the projection, you know, up onto the window, uh, but our car isn't like that. Uh, we're just going to have a cruise control button. And, uh, and so it also helps to make sure that a heavy foot and an absent mind, uh, don't make a red face uh, when you see that uh, police officer uh, in the distance. And so we were able to get there and back, um, you know, without any difficulties. And uh, the great thing about cruise control is that that right foot of yours, it, it's always there. It, it's just kind of hovering over the gas pedal. And in a split second, uh, you can be back in charge of the car again. Can you see where I'm going? Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of excitement there. <laughs> uh, he's going to mess with me. Um, I think a lot of us, without hesitation, would agree with all the Sunday school answers about who the God of the Bible is. But if we're honest, there's often a gap between our life and our lip, what we believe and what we live out. And in practice, I think we shrink God down to a much more manageable size in fact, I think he's about the size of a cruise control driver. It's about how we live our lives. We think of him quite capable of, of intervening in our lives and our affairs, but only if he has to, only occasionally actually doing so. Most of the time, he's just going to let things take their course. He's not going to get involved in things. He's just there kind of hovering over the pedal in our lives, maybe every once in a while, you know, jumping in to get someone out of a scrape, maybe uh, intervening to, to appoint a meeting between people, 
orchestrate some kind of resolution. Maybe you can spot if you are a God shrinker this morning. If you're a God shrinker, you might be someone who says things like this. It was a God thing. One of our favorite ones on the elder board level is, and God just showed up. We love that. Uh, it's just a, like, where was he before? Uh, but, but, you know, I mean, and God just showed up. It, it was a God thing. And uh, it was a God thing that when I went to the transfer station to drop off some dump and I realized I had to pay for it, Joe was right there and he had money and he lent it to me and I forgot my wallet at home. And it was just a God thing that Joe was right there in the nick of time to help me pay uh, at the transfer station. I don't think there's any problem with calling apparent coincidences a God thing. I'm not going to rebuke you for that this morning. That's not the goal. Uh, in fact, I think it's a great thing. I think it's all of us trying to use modern day language to kind of do what Esther did. And it just so happened. It was a God thing. God showed up. It's a way of trying to help people think about their everyday lives and that God is involved in it. But here's my question for you. Why do we only use that language when circumstances turn out good? Would we still describe the same event the same way if it turned out badly? What if bumping into Joe caused him to be two minutes late, caused him to feel rushed coming out of the dump and turn on the 106 and got hit by a truck? Would it still be a God thing? What if you were a lady and the fact that Joe helped you and paid for something, that now he thought that he had the right to, to throw a couple little come-ons your way or to, uh, to, to, to flirt with you? Would we consider that a God thing? You see, it's much easier to believe in God's providence when it leads to our short-term happiness and our comfort than when God's providence leads us into things that are going badly. We don't refer to someone losing their spouse through divorce or death, a chronic illness, losing a job, suffering with depression. We don't call those things God things, but the book of Ruth this morning is going to confront us that we have shrunk God. We've made God smaller than he really is in Scripture. And so perhaps this morning we've made God our cruise control driver who by and large just lets things take their course just stepping in from time to time. There's a book that I had read a number of years back. I brought it with you just to show you. Uh, it's called Soul Searching. Uh, it is a book uh, written by the sociologist Christian Smith, and in it he uh, traces the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers. Probably know why I read it now. Okay, and, uh, and in it he is trying to figure out what Christian teenagers really believe and, and how they live, and he sums it up like this. The majority of our American teenagers believe in moralistic, therapeutic deism. You guys go, that is just going to put me to sleep. But we're going to break it down. Deism just means what? Sure, there's a God, but he is not intimately involved in my everyday affairs. Moralistic, therapeutic, guess what that just means? It means this. If I do my part, if I live a pretty moral life, if I live a pretty decent life, and I care for people, then it is God's job to meet my needs. Morals, I do the right thing. Therapy, therapeutic, God's job is to make me happy. 
The majority of our Christian teenagers in America today believe that God is just out there. He's not intimately involved in our lives. And if I do the right things and live a pretty good life, then God will bless me. I don't think they're too far away from their parents. Do you? No wonder suffering is so traumatic for us in America because we believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And God is supposed to help us achieve that happiness if we live a pretty good life. And may I say, based upon our own standards of what good is, what an overly optimistic and naive view of life. Like Ron Duncan said last week in our interview, bad things happen to good people. Other good people, right? We assume too much. We assume that our futures will be like based upon our past of what we have given, what we have done, and what we feel we are owed in return for serving God and doing good. And so here's the problem. When this so-called agreement with God doesn't work out, I've done all these good things and, and my life isn't happy, then we begin to feel cheated Here's the principle this morning. We expect more out of life than we do out of God. We expect more out of life than we do out of God. And so this morning, we are in a journey towards hope, and we have to unshrink God to bring him back to his awesome, and that should be a word only reserved for God, his awesome glory. And beloved, in order to see that, we have to make our journey home. And so this morning's message of the journey of hope, a journey home, we have to come back to the home and see home as the God of the Bible. And as we read Ruth chapter 1 this morning, we're going to read the whole chapter. I want to encourage you to come back home. To come back home empty if you have to. To come back home, I think we see in Naomi's life here, with very low expectations. Beloved, if you're here and you are hurting this morning or you're depressed, I would even say come back bitter if you must. But come back home. Hear how 12 times in this chapter the word return or turn back is used. And I pray that you would hear it and that you would respond and that you too would turn back and return home. Let's hear the word of God. Beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Shilion. They were both Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Shilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husbands. That's the narrative approach. Now we're going to see all this dialogue. Fifty-five out of eighty-five verses in the book of Ruth are dialogue, and here it goes. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to the two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. 
They lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you this morning and we want to confess that at times we make you a very small and manageable God. We live as if you are not in every single circumstance. We live as if you are not sovereign over every detail and everything obeys you. Lord, we pray that we would have greater visions, that we would have big God theology not just in our head, but as Ron Duncan challenged us last week, to allow what is in our head to get pressed down into our hearts. And Lord, I would also love it if what is in my heart, the lies that I believe, the lies that seem to stick, that those would actually come up out of my heart through the pressing down of your word to renew my mind so I can be a living sacrifice, that we can be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable and pleasing to you, doing your will so that the light that we have and the world could see that you are God. Lord, where else can we go for you have the words of eternal life? We ask this in your name. Amen. You'll probably notice the first five verses of uh, this uh, passage kind of deals with uh, just the introductory issues, the circumstances that Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah are going to go through. Uh, But then after we get to the first five verses, verses 6 through 21 are broken down into three dialogues, and it's because there's three responses to these circumstances. So here's what we learn. Pain is pain no matter the circumstances. It might be different for you and for me, but pain is pain. But the other point is this. Perspective is also perspective. We're going to see three different ladies respond differently uh, to some of the same painful circumstances. Let's look, first of all, here at Ruth's, or not Ruth's, Naomi's perspective uh, in verses 6 and 7. It says, She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab the Lord had visited his people and given them food. 
We ain't going to be able to get into this, but you should do a word study on how the Lord visits people. And I think there's a little bit of foreshadowing here because the word visit here is the same word that God uses when the Lord visited Sarah and gave, him a son, or gave her a son. When the Lord visited Hannah and gave him Samuel. And the Lord visiting his people here. And what happens at the end of Ruth? The Lord gives Naomi a son a grandson. And we see this connection here at the beginning all the way to the end. The Lord is sovereign over this and he visits the people. We don't know how she got the word that the Lord had visited the people and given them food, but the word gets to her in Moab and she's awake and she begins to move, Naomi. But I think Karen Schwartz hit it on the hail, uh, hit the nail on the head last week in the grief panel. She goes, you know what though? Naomi probably was in a fog. You know, she's awake and she's moving, she's making decisions, but when you're suffering, you can still be in a fog. She, her saint-like character, she begins to go back to Bethlehem with her daughters-in-law, but on the way home, she begins to wake up to all that she's really lost. We would like to naively hope that Naomi somehow skipped all of the grieving process that is normal for us, that she somehow woke up the next morning transcendent with God's peace and said, oh. The Lord has visited Bethlehem. Sure, the Lord will visit me and my daughters-in-law and give us a kinsman redeemer. That's not how she starts. None of us start that way in grief. In fact, she is only beginning to come out of the fog and she's beginning to realize all that she has lost and she starts with logic. Naomi appears very logical, very practical. And this is what she says to them in verses 7 through kind of uh, 14. She begins to argue with her daughters-in-law, there is no reason for you to come with me to Bethlehem. That she begins to reason that there is no hope for her, Naomi, in Moab. She has no husbands. She has no sons, no land, no food, no hope, no future. She's a foreigner in Moab. And so her return to Bethlehem is a logical one. She's going to go back to where her family is at and the people of God are at. So she turns back. But her logic continues with her daughters-in-law. And she says here, uh, look with me at verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Go back to your mother's house? Would we expect that in the Hebrew Bible, in the ancient Near East? Whose house would we expect to hear there? Your father's house. She says, go back to your mother's house. You know it's only used one other time in all of Scripture? It's used in the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 4. If you're older than 18 and married, read it, okay? Uh, just kidding. Uh, some parents are like, Whew. that is not the next sermon series, okay? I promise. Um, but Song of Solomon chapter 3, verse 4, it says, go back to your mother's house, and it actually means a place of sexual intimacy. It means go back and get married, go back and have children. That's what she's saying. She saw no future for these young women in her country. We have to just remember that this is not like America, uh, where it is a melting pot, to come out of Moab and be Moabite women and to come live in Bethlehem meant that you would have nothing to share in except for Naomi's poverty because the likelihood of an Israelite man taking a Moabite wife is very unlikely. Okay? It, it is not going to happen. And so in logic, she says, don't return with me. 
In fact, this is so unlikely that Ruth, throughout the entire book, go ahead and read it again, and see how often she is called Ruth the Moabite. She can't shake that name. It is part of her identity. All the way into chapter 4, she is still Ruth the Moabite. And so she reasons for them to return home. So her logic for her own choice to go back home because she has no husband, no sons, no land, no future. She reasons for her daughters-in-law to stay there. But her logical reasoning also begins to apply to God. It's her modus of operandi for how she is in a relationship with God. Very logical with God. Look at verse 13 with me. This is how she begins to reason with the Lord. We have to read a couple of phrases. Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? And here's her logic with the Lord. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is Naomi's climax to her hypothetical situation. She begins to say, what's going to happen? I mean, if I was to get married today and have a kid, would you wait for him to grow up? Absolutely not. Is that even likely? No. So her last climax is the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She believes to stick with her and to move to Bethlehem is to doom oneself to her fate. And so she counsels her daughters-in-law to return to the gods of Moab. Look at verse 15. She said, See, your sisters-in-law have gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. What twisted thinking. What bad theology. Naomi is not being a great evangelist here, is she? She is saying that, Ruth, you have more hope with the gods of Moab than you do with the God of Israel. That that is how low she is in her present state of mind. Now, before we begin to say, Naomi, what a lack of faith you have. I mean, what a horrible witness. And We can get down on Naomi pretty quick. But I would argue that she has a bigger view of God than we do. She has not shrunk God as we have because she, she sees that God is not only sovereign in giving Bethlehem food, she sees that God is complicit even in her suffering. Naomi essentially says, I have an enemy, and his name is God. She is the female version of Job. In Job 6.4, Job says, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. What, what is Job saying? It is the Lord's arrows, and they are in me. We read Psalms 42 this morning, and let's see if I can get there. Psalms 42, just real quickly, verse 7, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. God is sovereign in putting these waves over them. The conclusion and this conviction that it is the Lord that has brought this bitterness is the point of the whole book that things do not happen by chance. God is sovereign over all things and he's going to bring to pass whatever he will. And I think we just need to untrink God this morning. So we're going to do some flipping. You guys ready? In honor of Pastor Jeff, here we go. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 7.14. Kind of a sword drill. Get your Bibles ready. Right after Proverbs, 
Ecclesiastes 7.14. Pages are flapping. Cell phones are being swiped. Here we go. <laughs> Wish that made a noise. Can we get an app for that? Whoosh, whoosh. Okay, there you go. Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God has made the day of prosperity as well as the day of adversity. Go over to Lamentations, right after Jeremiah. Keep going to the right. Lamentations, kind of a small book. If you see Ezekiel, you've gone too far. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37 and 38. Who has spoken, and it came to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Isaiah, go over to Isaiah now. Go backwards. Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And the last one, probably a little tricky to find, Amos 3.6 says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Amos 3.6. Beloved, I share those difficult verses with you this morning because I want us to know that we can unshrink God, that we have shrunk him, that we have even altered the God of the Bible, and therefore we behave a lot like our pagan friends and neighbors when it comes to suffering. We have a lot of the world view when we come to suffering. Some of us have a very uh, humanistic understanding, and we say things like, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We are like the unbroken, the movie version, not the true life story, because the, the unbroken story is a man of faith and how he got through that. But the movie version is a guy who, by his sheer willpower, got through suffering. Others of us get through suffering and think about suffering, that it has come upon us because we have sinned. And therefore, we bring in all of these Eastern religions like karma, and we think that because we have this evil on us, because we have sinned, now we're going to redouble our efforts at being good so that our good begins to what? Outweigh our bad. That creeps in. Did this happen to me because of what I did so many years ago? Now I'm going to get more zealous in church. I'm going to give more, serve more, love more. Some of us are fatalistic. My generation, I've heard a lot of people my age say, it is what it is. It will be what it will be. It's real, real deep. Um, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That, that, that's the biblical version of that sentence. Okay, And basically what they're saying is accept it, deny it, but suffering is meaningless. Suffering is meaningless. It is what it is. But perhaps our favorite one here in America is secularism, which says avoid it or fix it. When we come to suffering, oh, avoid it at all costs, stay away. 
or do everything in your power because you have control as Americans, so work for your health, for your wealth, and to be comfortable with friends. But all of those are cheap and deficient substitutes when suffering really hits. Unlike all of those false worldviews, Christianity teaches us that suffering is overwhelming. It is real. Not like what the Buddhists say, it's just a figment of your imagination. Suffering is often unfair, unlike what karma says. You got it because you did this. No, suffering at times does seem very unfair. And unlike what we believe here in America, suffering is meaningful and there is a purpose to our suffering and it can use it, God can use it to bring us and to drive the nail into the love of God. And so God's ultimate purpose with Ruth, if we go back there, is not to punish her for her family's failures, that's what she thinks, but through a mysterious intermingling of God's providential control, just like Joseph, God is going to work things out to save Ruth and to save the world, right? Friends, I think we just need to know something that is so simple, but when we get in suffering, we just confuse it and we forget it. And it is that God sees the entire picture. And just hang on to this. God does not make mistakes. God knows that we are in chapter one and he knows what story he is writing for us, for you, for creation, for your family. And guess what? What you're going through is not his plan B. It is his plan A. This is what God is working through. And so if God has been a part of your wounding, we're going to see through the book of Ruth that God is also going to be a part of your healing. God is going to work all things together for good for those that love him. But I'll agree with you. Naomi is scared of her future because of her past. Have you ever been that way? When is the next shoe going to drop? So look with me at verses 20 and 21. This is what she thinks of her past. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Her name Naomi meant pleasantness, and her logic says, My life has not been pleasant. Therefore, call me Mara, which means bitter. And so she wants to change her name. She goes, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Would you notice that this is after Ruth says, I will cling to you? Ruth is standing there right beside her, and I don't know how Ruth feels, but right in verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Not a thank you, not a little bit of grace. Thank you for this journey. No, Naomi just set her lips and said, I guess we're going on this together. The Lord has brought me back empty. Well, who is this person here? When we need our intangible God to be very tangible, he sends her Ruth, a tangible person to get through this suffering. And yet Naomi and her experience of God, and may I even say of history, is twisted. Does she kind of have a short-term amnesia? What? She goes, the Lord has brought calamity upon me. I went away full. Is that true? Has she forgotten 10 years ago? What happened in Bethlehem 10 years ago? There's a famine. Life was harsh to her then, and now she just got battered in Moab. And she has forgotten. And she probably feels that God is all out of miracles when it comes to her. She's used up 
all of God's mercy. But our memory verse that I encourage you to hide in your heart, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he causes us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope, living out of the death of Jesus. Death to life. And Ruth says, no, I went away full and now I'm in famine. But the Bible switches that and says that of Christ's death that now we can be made alive. Enter Ruth. She is that low, but Ruth is on the scenes. And let's look here at Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Because right when she needs to know God's presence the most, he sends his people to make himself known. Ruth 16 says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I want to share with you how beautiful this is, grammatically in the Hebrew text. You're going to see parallelisms, and it's trying to point to that middle red. This is how the author organized it. The first sentence, there's five sentences in this passage, five sentences, there they are. The first and the last go together. You can see how they're similar. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. It's a plea. Here's another plea. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You can see how there's the, I will do this, or, or you will do this, in the two yellow ones. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Do you see how it's kind of the same? In Hebrew, the climax is always in the middle. We do our punchlines where the climax is where? At the end. And in Hebrew, it's always in the middle. So if you read the book of Jonah, the climax to Jonah's story is actually in the middle of the book of Jonah. That's how they did things. And here the climax is seen in red, and here's what I want to show with you. All five sentences have a verb except for the middle sentence. There is no verb in the middle sentence. It's imported in English, but in Hebrew, no verb. It stands out. It's your people, my people, your God, my God. Sounds very <laughs> caveman-like, okay? But the purpose is all the other ones are future tense, aren't they? Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, what's, what's the future tense? I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. Where you will be buried, I will be buried. All of that's future. But all of that flows out of the middle, which is your God is my God. Your people is my people. This is not so much a declaration or a promise to Naomi. It is a declaration that Ruth knows the covenant God. And it actually begins with the middle. And so what she's saying here is, because your God is my God, and because your people are my people, therefore I will go where you will go, and I will lodge where you will lodge. I will die where you will die, and I will be buried where you will be buried. We see true conversion here. This is the same kind of conversion that Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians, where you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Ruth, a Moabite, has more faith in a covenant God than a little girl named Naomi who was raised in a Hebrew household hearing the stories of her covenant God all the days of her life. And she has this faith to say, your God 
is my God. Your people is my people. What this means is that we make Jesus our Savior even if it means losing everything else you have. Think about what Ruth is saying here. It's like the rich young ruler in the New Testament. Lord, I've done all to follow you. Great. Go and sell all you have and come and follow me. And so here is the equation for you this morning. Yahweh plus nothing or everything without Yahweh. What do you want? Everything minus Yahweh or Yahweh minus everything? Ruth knows that to cling to Naomi, she's going to lose it all. She is clinging to her in poverty. This is what Pat Shagman said this morning. This is the difference between the narrow road and the broad road because this is the first time in the story that the two daughters-in-law acted independently. We know that Orpah went back to her family and to her gods. No, no, no longer do we know what happens to Orpah in the story. So two, verge, two roads diverge here, one to salvation, one to perhaps comfortability in Moab. So if you're here this morning and you come because your family comes and you love your spouse or you love your mom and dad and they bring you here and that's why you come, I just want you to know if that is the only reason why you are coming here, the pull of Moab, the pull of the world is too strong and you will turn back. Is Jesus is all that we are for all that he is. That is true conversion. That is true repentance. She is willing to cling to him Yahweh plus nothing or everything minus Yahweh. If you feel deeply convicted that a former pagan has more passion for Israel's God than a child of the covenant, I think all of us should sit up and take note. We also need to search our heart that we are not like Orpah who turn back, who are almost persuaded like King Agrippa in Acts 26. Maybe you here have tasted heaven, you've tasted fellowship, you've tasted God's grace, but you are not convinced. Ruth gives us an example of what it means to be convinced, and it is through Ruth that Naomi's name goes from Mara, bitter, back to sweetness. And if you read through Exodus 15 this afternoon, you will see that Naomi forgot the Old Testament story. The Old Testament story is the Israelites came out of the wilderness. They were only in the wilderness three days. They came to a pool. They had no water. They began to grumble and complain, even though they just had a Red Sea deliverance, right? And they began to grumble and complain. They said, we can't drink this water, for it is bitter. And they called it Mara. But guess what the Lord did? The Lord says, I am your healer. And he made it sweet by throwing in a branch. And the next place they stopped in their wilderness journey was Elam. And it said there was many pools of water there. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you're going through the wilderness and it is a desert for you and you feel that you can cry out and say that your name is Mara, just know that God is your healer and often he sends it through people and that we can even find on this side of heaven refreshment, pool in glory. Would you return home to the Lord our healer? Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for who you are. We want to sing just as I am.
We want to come as brothers and sisters to find people that can be our Ruth, that can cling to us, that can hold us in our time of suffering. We pray for our prayer warriors. We pray for those who have needs that would like to have a tangible touch of a person so that they don't think that you're this far-off God that just hovers above a cruise control. God, we thank you that you are in every detail of our life and that we can rejoice that this is plan A and that you work all things together for good. Give us the faith to see it. Shall we pray? Amen. Let's stand.